0: The Creek Church is a community of believers located in Fort Worth, Texas. If you would like more information about the Creek Church, please be sure to visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Those of you who are here Easter, thank you for everything. It was an incredible weekend. Um, it was the largest weekend we've ever seen, but it's not about the number of people we saw. Here's what I loved. Thank you so many people who served for the first time. Um, I said this a couple weeks ago in one of our trainings that the volunteers are the backbone of what happens here on a Sunday. We have the gospel, and the gospel stands on its own. That's strong enough. That's stronger than anything, but the volunteers are the backbone. So thank you for being a part of that and making Easter such an incredible weekend. You have my heart and my thanks. So if I'm Pastor Matt. If you're new here, um, like Ryan said, if you wouldn't mind filling out one of those Connect cards, we'd love to get some information to you about who we are. You can put that in the... We have a giving station at the back of the room as you go out the door. We don't pass a plate or anything, but... Just fill that out to the level of your comfort, and we'd love to get some information to you. All right, if you've got your Bibles, just go to Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we keep some on the back table for you. If you don't own one, write your name in that. That's our gift to you. And uh, if you've got a smartphone, you can find that you can Google Ephesians uh, 1, or you can find that there's an app called UVersion, you can find it on Ephesians chapter 1. We're back into my wheelhouse here because uh, we've been doing some series over the last couple months, but what I love to do is just take a book of the Bible and just roll up our sleeves and just start plowing through it. So we're going to start this journey through Ephesians today, and I don't know how long we're going to be in it. Um, because Ephesians is it's one of those letters that is just very rich doctrinally. Um, there's a lot of foundational work. And this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And it's called a circulatory letter, which means he wrote it to the church of Ephesus, but it was designed to circulate to the churches in the region. Um, and we're calling this this series, this Journey Through Ephesians, Grace at Work, Because we're going to see how God starts to lay some foundational work for the church, the body. There's a a corporate aspect that goes into this, this whole piece. And when he lays the foundation of the church, we've got to understand something about church. When I say church today, I'm not talking about little c. Like the creek is little c. We're a church. We're a local expression of the body. But when I say church in this teaching, it's a capital C. It's the big church. It's the corporate collective body of Christ. I meet with a lot of pastors in our area, and we are a part of the church. We may differ on how we we interpret some scriptures, and we may differ doctrinally on some things. There's different denominations, but... Ultimately, we are a part of the church. And so God lays some foundational work about it. We've got to understand something about this church. It's, it's the church is me, but the church is also us. The, okay, the church is individual yet corporate. So we're designed, our, we're saved as individuals, but we are designed to live in community and connection with Jesus and one another. And that's the church, that's his body. That's the expression of of his body on the earth. And so we're going to start this out with the role of God in the church and kind of what God does in us to prepare us to be a part of this, this whole thing called the church. Now, this is, um, is going to be an intense morning because uh, we're just going to take off. It's just going to go into this. Whenever Heather and I fly out, I'll lean over to Heather after we take off. And sometimes I, I can get this right where I can tell if it's a Navy pilot or an Air Force pilot. That is flying our plane. And how I tell is an Air Force pilot takes his long, smooth, they got time. A Navy pilot, man, when you hit the, when those front wheels come up, it's like, we're gone. And, and so we'll take off and I'll tell Heather, like, that's a Navy pilot right there. And the landing is even more fun. But um, <laughs> they're used to landing up with a small amount of space. We're going to take off today, okay? So we're going to do the first two verses, and then we're going to get into the the last part. So Paul starts this in verse 1. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, let me encourage you, mark in your Bible, write in it, underline, highlight, make notes, whatever it is you've got to do. If you're on the version, you can still make notes. You create an account. And you can highlight and make notes on your account and go back and look at those. Ephesians is an incredible book. I love the book of Ephesians. Um, starts out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. An apostle is a sent one. So Paul is sent. The church, you and I are part of the church, we're sent to the world. There's a, there's a purpose that we have. The purpose of the church is when we gather, we're equipped to prepare to scatter. So the church doesn't find our greatest strength when we're in this room. The church finds her greatest strength when we're out in the world. And so that's what the apostle, is, he sent. And so Paul uh, writes this. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of background about Ephesus. Ephesus is a key city in the Roman Empire. I've got a map for you. I mean, it'll show where Ephesus is in relation to other large cities. You see where Jerusalem is, Rome, Philippi, Athens, Corinth. These are places that Paul visited. But I, I, I'm not going to go into a lot of the geography and the commerce and, and everything that's going on in the city of Ephesus. I want you to see this on a real map so that you understand that this is not a fairy tale. That Ephesus is a real place, it's a real location. And there was a real church, there's real people, there's real faith that started, and there's foundational elements in this letter to the Ephesian church that you and I benefit from today. Because Paul went to Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys, and he planted a church there, he really, and he loved the people of Ephesus. At one time, he spent three years there. But because he spent that time and laid that foundational work, and because of the scripture that we're going to start working through, you and I benefit from the foundations of the church because you and I are continuing to build on that. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The apostles built the foundation, and we get the benefit of continuing to build in this church, which is the purpose of the kingdom of God. Now, the people of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, verse two, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Normally, Paul will start a letter by by calling out a few people, kind of like, how's your mom and them? Um, Everything good, good, good? Okay, let's get into this. And most of the time when he would write a letter, he was getting into an issue uh, in the church. I mean, because in the in the New Testament, churches had issues. The church still has issues, right? We're a bunch of jacked-up people that get in a room together. Uh, you know what's funny is when we go to lunch, on Sunday after church is the best time, because you see Christians eating lunch together, and you really look at that table. And you go, you know what? Without Jesus, those people wouldn't be anywhere near each other. And that's the beauty of church. I mean, that's the truth of this room. Jesus unites us, but we're a mess. And so he's not dealing with a mess in the Ephesian church. Um, He's writing them as an encouragement and to lay some foundational work. And the people in this church were very smart. They did a great job of learning. So when Paul visited Ephesus, they didn't have the New Testament. Paul didn't say, hey, turn to my letter, Ephesians 1. Um, They used the Old Testament. And the people of Ephesus were very great at studying the law and studying the commands of God and then relating that, um, the prophecy to the Messiah and who the Messiah is, is Jesus. And they were very good at guarding against false teaching. So they, they knew the truth so when a counterfeit truth came along, they could quickly identify it. You and I have got to be good at studying scripture and knowing scripture so that when a, a false truth comes along, we can identify it and go, that's jacked up, that's a mess, get out, it ain't going to happen. And so God, Jesus actually commends them for this in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, he says, you did well at keeping out the false teaching, but there's one thing I have against you. You lost your first love. You abandoned the love you had at first. So what happened is you spent all your time in your head, and you studied, and you learned, and you could have a doctrinally sound church, but you lost the love. You had the head out front, but the heart never caught up. Now, there's head-first people, and there's heart-first people. In our household, we're we're just backwards. I'm a heart-first guy. I tend to lead with emotion. All the girls in my house and in my family are head-first girls, makes for interesting times around the Oxley household. (laughs) What do I mean by that? Too much time in the head, we can lose our heart. Too much time in the heart, and we forget the value of understanding. You see, your head and your heart are in a a line. And if you're led by your head, you tend to go like this. Your heart's got to catch up. So head people, it's about study, 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 study. For heart people, it's about experience, experience, experience. For when we do the worship at the beginning, the song section of the service, head people have a hard time getting in because they're analyzing the words. And they're like, I want to see how Jesus fits on the graph with faith. My, My challenge to you head first people is let the Holy Spirit do some work in your heart so you can experience some things you heart-first people. I'm with you. I struggle with study. Study for me is a challenge. Studying the Word of God is a challenge. I have to discipline myself to do it. I hate study so much. My junior year of high school, at the end of the school year, I had to go to the counselor's office and and get the combination for my locker so I could turn in my textbooks. (laughs) I don't like to study. It does not come natural to me. The emotion does. Let's go feel something. Let's experience something. But we've got to catch up. If you you go into a lot of different cultures, then they're, they're going to vary. But in America, the North American church, if I were to go in and say, what does discipleship mean? Most Christians in America and in North America would answer this. I need to study the Bible more. I need to understand more about what it's saying. I've got to memorize more verses. That's all head-related. The church in America needs some experience. Are we getting out of these walls, getting out of our study, and letting the Holy Spirit take us to the community so we experience things? In worship, our worship environments, we've got to let our heart get caught up and get swept away sometimes. And then our hand has to get involved. Some cultures, if you ask them, what's discipleship mean? They go, I got to do, I got to do, I got to do. There has to be a balance, head, heart, hand. We need to know who we're serving and know what we're doing and study truth so we can recognize fake. But we've got to let our heart be engaged with emotion and love, and then we use our hands and we serve the world around us. And the church in Ephesus was a very headstrong church. And Jesus says, I have this against you. I love you, but I have this against you. Let's get it fixed. So then he goes into verse 3, and, and this is where that plane, the, the Navy pilot, just pulling it back, and we're getting ready to take off. Verse 3 through 14 is one run-on sentence in the original Greek, Greek text. I'm not going to read it that way because I don't have enough breath. So I was laughing about this the other day in my office because when I was reading that, I was like, say what? If you think about it, all of Scripture is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So was Paul so excited he just forgot to add punctuation? I mean, he, he launches in, and these, ver- th- these few verses are incredibly doctrinally rich. We're going to deal with some difficult things in here. So let me start out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm going to give you some commentary so we understand this. Paul is calling God blessed. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to get into this idea of the Trinity here in just a second. But when he says that he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, what does he mean by that? Um, That that God has blessed us. There is a blessing that God is pouring out on his church, on his people, those who were in Christ. And, And this spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms let me explain it to you this way. Um, it's all the benefits of knowing God, and it's not just for the temporary, it's for eternal. See, I could give you some cash this morning, and you would say, I blessed you. And then you would go out, and whatever you spend that cash on would determine the extent of that blessing. But once you spend it, it's gone. Blessing's gone. We've used it up. It's done. It's temporary. When when we see that we are blessed in the heavenly realms, that means it is an eternal blessing, that it doesn't end with this life, that the blessing that God gives us goes way beyond our temporary, um, what we see and what we experience. And it's all the benefits of knowing God. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, We see again, this has just been a theme for my study over the last month. Before the foundation of the world, there's a theme. God has had a purpose. God has had a plan. God knows what's going on. Now, for some of you, you're picking up on this, like God chose you and he's had a plan. So it brings in two doctrinal terms that we'll see is election and predestination. And we're gonna get into that because it is difficult for a lot of people to understand. But when we talk about, let's back up and move into it The foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, you have the plan. God has had a plan. The church, you and I, and all the churches, the capital C Church, is a reflection of God. And when you see this reflection of God, it's really a reflection of the Trinity. If if you're unfamiliar with the, the term Trinity, it is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is distinct. Yet three in one. If you want to break it down like this, the Trinity is this. It's one what, three who's. They live in perfect community. They were in perfect community before the foundation of the world. The church is a reflection of this, that we are one church, yet we're very diverse. We're unique. We all have giftings. We all have abilities. We all have desires. We all have... God has a plan for every one of our lives but he also has a plan for the church, a predetermined plan for the church. So we're unique, yet we're unified. We come into this room so that we can be one. And this community that the Trinity experiences is perfect. And the reflection of the church, when you go back to the beginning, we, the, the community was broken in the garden with God. And God is the first missionary. God went to Adam and Eve. God stepped out. He stepped out to pursue Adam and Eve. He went to go find them. He chose to go to them. And so we we see that God has been pursuing us from the very beginning. And when you get into that, let me, let me go back, let me read verse 4 through 6 again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is Jesus, um, so in Christ. So you've got this idea of election and predestination. The the challenge with that is we tend to try to make that individualistic. Let, Let me give you, let me just help you break this down a little bit. It is God choosing to pursue us and has a plan for us. God has chosen to pursue you and has a plan for your life. And the motivation for God's pursuit is not our potential. God doesn't need a top-round draft pick in Fort Worth, and that's why he saved Matt. The best that I can bring him is an incredible mess, and the best I can do is filthy rags. He pursued us because of his love, and it's always about his glory. So God didn't save me so that I could be good. He saved me because He is good. See, when I I pursue that, when I pursue that life, as God pursued me, I end up giving God glory. When God gets glory, I get joy. And then He reveals this plan. What's the plan from the foundation of the world? In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. Redemption just means to buy back through His blood. So in Christ, God has bought us back through the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. That's the mystery of grace. According to his purpose, what is his purpose? For his glory, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. What does that mean? That there's a pre-plan. He has pre-planned us to have an inheritance according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So this plan, what is this plan? It's the salvation of people. It's God revealing himself. And then it's us responding in faith. This is the beauty of grace. This is how God saves us. It's God's work, not ours. In, a, in several weeks or a couple weeks, whenever we get to Ephesians 2, we're going to read that it's by grace we've been saved, and it's not a work by us but by God so that we can't boast about it, so that we don't become prideful and go, I saved myself. We don't possess that ability to save ourselves. So then you have grace extended to us, God pursuing us, Jesus paying for us. So it's kind of like this adoption. God sees us, he desires us, he pursues us, he pays for us, pays for us with what? The blood of Christ. And then when we hear this good news, this gospel, we are made alive. He has bought us back. We are redeemed, we are forgiven. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit then comes in. Verse 13 and 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you've got this work. Paul, is, he's just launched into this letter of saying that God blesses us. And when we when we get into this, the nuts and bolts of it, we see that the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Trinity, the triune God, blesses us. And each individual in the Trinity has a blessing for us. And and I love how Paul starts this this verse three, and he launches into this, this. The letter is, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is calling God blessed. And it's not that Paul (laughs) That was a big spit. Did you see that? That distracted me. (laughs) Paul, um, it's not that Paul is blessing God. It's not that Paul is saying, because I'm saying this, God, you're blessed. Paul is recognizing the fact that God is a blessed God. And it brings up this beautiful principle that God is blessed to be a blessing. You and I are blessed to be a blessing. That we, we have a father. We have blessing in the heavenly realms. We have all the rights and privileges of God as our father. And he is blessed to pour those blessings on us so that we become a blessing to others. It's all about this flow. Paul writes to a letter to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 11, he, he, I love what he says. He says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. They're taking up a collection for a church. And he's like, look, God's going to to enrich you so that you can be generous. And later on, he he really identifies the whole will of God, and that's the glory of God, because he says, they're going to see this. They're going to see what his body does, and they're going to give God glory because of it. And so God is a generous God who gives generously to us so that we can be generous to give generously to the people in need. We're blessed to be a blessing. We're never called to hoard it up. We get, we're get we given to so we can give. It's a beautiful thing. So let's talk about this idea of the Trinity and how God blesses us. So God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit blesses us. The first thing is God the Father blesses us. And um, <laughs> it's an. Int- I got a funny story. I'm going to share it. I shared it in the first service, and I was told I, I, can, I got clearance from the tower to share it in all three. It was, I didn't get permission the first, I just shared it. Several years ago, probably 10, 15 years ago, Heather and I were with some friends, and we were in Cancun. And um, when I'm on vacation, I'll do like catch up reading. And uh, so I'm laying by the pool, and our friend, is in the chair next to me, and Heather's here, and we're, we're all just kind of in a line by the pool reading. And there was a woman there who was um, very happy. Um, she w- had been encouraged by uh, Jack or Jim or Tito, I don't know, but uh, she was hammered. Let's just say it that way. She was hammered, and it was hilarious. And for some reason, I guess I have this, hey, talk to me, look on my face. While I'm reading this book, and she says, "What's you read it? She's from Jersey. And she's like, What's you reading? And I didn't want to tell her because it was a Christian book. I got back, it's a Christian book, but the book was about sex and relationships and, and marriage. And I was, I was thinking about implementing this book into my premarital counseling routine and stuff, but it was called Sex God. <laughs> so, to the hammered woman at the edge of the pool, going, What are you reading? Sex God. Sex God. <laughs> All of Cancun knows that this man is reading Sex God. And so everybody that I'm sitting with, they're, they're busting out. They're just dying. They're laughing. Hilarious. What do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. You're a, pa- you're a father? Well, I'm a father, but I'm also a pastor. No, you're a father. She's like, can you bless me, father? He's like, no, I can't. So we finally... Okay, awkward, awkward, awkward. Fast forward to the evening. Said hammered woman walks in the lobby of the hotel, recognizes while all. We're sitting in a booth waiting for our dinner reservation. She comes in, hammered still, tore up from the day. I mean, clothes barely on. Comes in, "'Father, I need you to bless me, Father.'" Hi, Father, I've sinned. And so she comes over to the table, and she's getting ready to sit on my lap. And I'm like, this is no bueno. I'm getting ready to see Heather come up in fight mode. It was beautiful. This was the grace of God. As she's sliding in the booth to sit on my lap, I just kind of slide her over. She sits on Dustin's lap. (laughs) She puts her arm. She didn't know the difference. Dustin's a pastor. I was like, he's a pastor too. He'll bless you. (laughs) So she's like, can you bless me, Father? And our other friend goes, he's a pastor, not God, and he's not Santa Claus. You don't have to sit on his lap. She was, I mean, she was after the blessing of God, man. I mean, she was wanting it. I was like, I can't help you, man. You're jacked up. Security, please help us. So, But we need to understand that God, our Father, does bless us. God, I know that's a weird parallel, but we don't come to him And he blesses us. He desires to bless us. How does he bless us? How does our father, God, who is a good father, who is a perfect father, bless us? He chose us. I mean, from the foundation of the world, we see that there's a plan, and he has chosen us. Now, this this idea of election gets a little difficult when you think of election and having a predetermined plan of predestination. Don't make it individualistic. Look at it that God is pursuing his people. God has seen us and desired us and has pursued us. He says, I have chosen you. I have seen you and I'm going to get you back. I'm gonna do what I have to do to get you. So he chose us. The The beauty of grace is this. It's an incredible mystery. We can't fully understand grace because while we don't deserve it, a perfect God gives it. While there's nothing we do to earn his blessing, he gives it. He chose us. We're a mess. And he says, but I love you. He pursued you. And then he adopted us. It's not like, hey, I, just, I chose you to have a connection with. I'm adopting you. And adoption in the Hebrew context and Greek context means this, that it's not bringing an outsider in and placing them in a home. It is establishing a family member with all the full rights and privileges as in a full-grown adult son, meaning a potential head of household. God says, I'm bringing you in. I'm bringing you into the family. I'm not setting you as a slave in my house or a servant in my house. I am setting you as my son. I'm setting you as my daughter. And women, the beauty of this, Jesus did more than anybody in history to give rights to women. This adoption, the woman has the same rights and privileges. God adopted us and he accepts us I mean, one one of the things that is a challenge when you look at, when we talk to adoptive families is that there's that time period after adoption where the child's a little worried, like "Are you going to send me back?" God has accepted us. And I, I was talking to one of our adoptive parents, and they said their 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 child was feeling that way, that they had to kind of discipline them a little bit, and they went up and started packing their bags. And they went up and so, said, what are you doing? They said, Well, I thought you were going to send me back. And they said, no, no, no. We adopted you. You are our child. That's the blessing of God. That's the blessing of our Father. So much so that he sent his only son, Jesus, to pay for that adoption. So Jesus blesses us. The son blesses us. How does he bless us? Jesus has redeemed us, and he forgives us. Remember, redemption means buy back. And forgiven us literally means to send away, that our sin has been sent away. This concept is spoken of in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16. On the day of atonement, Aaron, the priest over Israel, would take a live goat, he would place his hands on the head of this goat, and he would confess all the sins of Israel while his hands were on this goat. So all of the sins of Israel, God said, will be placed on this goat. He releases it into the wilderness. The goat goes into the wilderness, and the sins of the people are sent away. It's called a scapegoat. Jesus, I'm serious. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus came and bore our sin on the cross. That on him was laid the iniquity of every one of us. And our sin was sent away. That those who are in Christ, it will be remembered no more. That Jesus has redeemed us and forgiven us. Jesus revealed the will of God to us. While he was on earth, the the three years of ministry, he was revealing the will of God. He said, I've come to do my father's will. I and the Father are one. What is the will of God? It's to unite us in Him. It's to unite you and I in Christ through the blood shed on the cross, that is the redemption and forgiveness of sin, but to unite us in Him. He said, Look, I came to be the payment for the adoption so that you and I can be be united. And that united nature is this is that Jesus has brought us into an inheritance. It's kind of like I'm bringing you in to this inheritance so that you're as blessed as I am. In Romans chapter 8, I love what Paul says to the church in Rome. He says that the spirit testifies to our spirit. He also talks about the spirit of adoption, that we cry, Abba, Father. That's like Daddy. We can call our God Daddy. That's how much he loves us and wants that, that connection with us. But he says that the spirit Holy Spirit testifies to our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children of God, then we're also heirs with God. And we're heirs with Christ. It says it's provided that we may share in his suffering, but we also share in what? His glory. What is the inheritance? It's the eternal glory of God. Everything God does is about his glory. He is the most magnificent. He is the most excellent. He is the only one deserving of the glory. And that is his will. That when we are united in Christ, what happens? God gets glory. When, when our head grows in knowledge, God gets glory. When we experience things through the Holy Spirit, God gets glory. When we serve, God gets glory. So the Father blesses us, the Son blesses us. What's the blessing of the Holy Spirit? verse 13 and 14, tells us that he seals us. The Holy Spirit blesses us. The Holy Spirit seals us. What does this mean? When we are made in Christ, that when we approach Jesus, when we come to faith, when we're saved, born again, regenerated, transformed, whatever word you want to use, here's what has to happen, is that we come to Jesus, we humble ourselves, and we say, Jesus, you are the Lord and Savior of my life. You paid for my sin and I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking for my sin to be laid on the shoulders of Christ and for that sin to be taken away. And we become new. And what happens is this is the beauty of salvation where you see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man when you start talking about election and predestination, here's what it means. That that God chose us. God has a plan. He's pursuing us. You're not here by accident. You're here by a divine appointment because God has been pursuing you and he loves you and he's wooing you. And you come into an environment where Jesus is worshiped and the gospel is spoken that Jesus, who is the son of God, the perfect lamb, gave his life for you on a cross and he was resurrected on Easter. And you hear this truth, and then here's what you have to do. You have to respond in faith to that truth. God's sovereignty, your responsibility. He has chosen to, for you to hear that truth. He has chosen for his church to be blessed. He has chosen to save us. His desire is that none should perish, but all come to repentance. That comes through Christ. We hear that. We respond to that. The predestination, God has preplanned his church for blessing, not curse, Throughout the Old Testament, tell the nation of Israel, choose life, choose blessing. Don't choose death. Don't choose curses. I have pre-planned for you to be blessed. Walk in it. And the Holy Spirit seals us in that. He puts his stamp on us. He says, you're mine. Nothing can break the seal of the Holy Spirit. Not even the enemy doing the pickle jar thing, that. You know, guys, when you do that and you you like "Mm," hand it to your wife, she's like, you're like, I loosen it for you, baby. (laughs) You're welcome. Nothing can break the seal. So what when does that seal get opened up? On the day of redemption, when we step in to the eternal glory of God. God's like, enjoy your life enjoy me, enjoy the glory, enjoy the goodness. So he seals us. And how do we know all this? How do we know that when we put our faith in Christ, that it's real? How do we know God is real? Because the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. He's our deposit. See, if you're going to buy a house, you got to put down earnest money, right? Doesn't mean you're living in it, but it means you're saying, I'm going to. And you drive by it, you're looking like they're in my house right now. I've already put my earnest money down. That is my place. I'm going to put the Ford on the mail. See, you and I in Christendom and, and in church in this age, we live in the already but not yet. That our glory has already been paid for. It's already been done but we don't get there yet. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm your earnest money. You're going to experience the glory of God on earth. You're going to experience the kingdom of God on earth. You're going to experience me working through on you because I'm your earnest money. I'm your guarantee saying you don't live in the fullness of it yet, but you're going to. That's the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And he's at work in the church. So God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of of the church. He's destined us for blessing. He has chosen to pursue us and chosen to give us life. And we live in the fullness of that adoption. And you and I are brought into the family business. What's God's family business? It's the glory of God. So ultimately, the question that we ask ourselves today is, is my life a reflection of the glory of God? If it's not, It could be a couple things. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Are you in Christ? If you're in Christ and your life isn't reflecting the glory of God, then then where's the hang up? Where's the imbalance? Is it the head, the heart, or the hand? The whole purpose of God's plan before the foundation of the world is for us to be united in Christ so that God gets the glory we share in that glory. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for your plan. God, I pray that if anyone in this room is, is as, they, as they reflect on that question, are we reflecting your glory, God? If the answer is no, then I pray that you make it absolutely clear where they're sitting and in the quietness of their moment that maybe it's because they've never placed their faith in Christ. Maybe it's because they've never allowed their sin to be placed on your shoulders, Jesus. And I ask you to give them the courage. You've been pursuing them. You've brought them to this moment before the foundation of the world. You knew this moment would arrive today. And I pray that you give them the courage to say, Jesus, I need you to redeem me. I need you to forgive me. I'm asking you to forgive me I'm asking you to bring me in to the family of God save me forgive me if that's you if you've never done that before my challenge to you is is at the close of this service I want you to come and talk to someone at this altar you are not designed to do this alone you become part of the church when you're saved and it's personal but corporate it's you but it's also us mark it on that card just so we can help you with the next steps father we thank you for your blessing in our life let us live every day reflecting your glory God, help us to study and learn and know so that, that we have your word and we can process and we can determine what's true and what's not. Father, help us increase in our heart the experience that Holy Spirit, you move in our heart, that you lead us, you guide us, stir us, take our breath away, God, sometimes. And help us to engage our hands to serve the world around us, so that in everything we do, we give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Creek Church Podcast. If you would like more information about us, please visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Thank you.